0: All right, well, today we're going to wrap up this series that we've been doing, that we've been calling The Providence of God, Lessons from the Life of Joseph. I will admit to you, I'm a little bummed uh, that we're finishing. I mean, it's like I got to the end of his life and I thought, no, give me about ten more chapters because it's been so rich and it's been so good. But every week we've come together around kind of an organizing idea or principle, and it's the organizing idea or principle of a picture or really of a giant jigsaw puzzle. And we've talked all about that, and we've used that image or that idea of a giant jigsaw puzzle to kind of help us understand, first of all, what the providence of God is, but then secondly, how it works. And I've said repeatedly every week, look, the providence of God is this idea that God did not simply create the heavens and the earth together with everyone and everything in them, including all of us And then wound us up like a clock and turned us loose to go off and do whatever it is that we want to do to see what it is that all of the little pieces of his creation would do or how it is they would come together and what kind of a picture they would in the end create on their own. But instead, God started with the picture in mind. And it's his picture. He decided on the front end exactly what it is that he wants us to eternally gaze into, to discover, to marvel over, to wonder over, to be awestruck by, to be caused to worship in light of... And then he created. He created the heavens and the earth. He created everyone and everything that is, including every one of us. And having then created us like so many different little pieces to his giant jigsaw puzzle, he then stepped sovereignly into his creation and began putting his puzzle together, piece by piece, perfectly And every one of our little lives is like one little piece of that puzzle. It's little, but you know what? The puzzle's incomplete without us. So every week I've gotten up and I've said that. But the one thing that I haven't said is I haven't told you what the big picture is. And you're wondering, right? I mean, what's the big picture? And I can't describe it to you in detail. I I haven't seen it. And even if I had seen it, I still wouldn't be able to exhaust it because it's an infinite picture Forever and ever, we will be discovering new and new beauties of it, new and new marvels of it, new and new wonders of it. But the Scripture does at least allow me to speak to it generally. I can tell you what the topic is. God is creating a big picture, and every one of our little lives is a part of it, of His glory. That clear it up for you? Not entirely, does it? I mean, if I pass the quiz out now, what is the big picture of God for His glory? But, you know, you're walking out the door going, and what does that mean? I mean, what's the glory of God? Let me give you a definition. It's not going to help either. But just go with me for a second, okay? The glory of God is the sum total of all of His attributes. It's this attribute plus this attribute plus this attribute plus this attribute plus this attribute. Add it all up. That's the glory of God. Does that clear it up? Not yet. What are the attributes? And for that, I want to go to the Shorter Catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which excites you immediately. I know that it does. It enlivens you in your heart. You're like, yes, finally, he's going to the confession. I want to stop and say, do you know what? That confession is precious. That confession is beautiful. That confession is the foundational document, theologically speaking, of Presbyterianism, of this church, of our denomination, of believers all over the world. It is one of the most priceless documents written. And it has, question number four in the Shorter Catechism, asks this question. The question is, what is God? It's not, how is God? When is God? Where is God? Why is God? It doesn't ask those questions. It's asked, what is God? And then the Westminster divines who constructed this confession and this particular answer and question scoured the Bible, okay, and they came up with an answer. Are you ready for this? This is so cool. God is a spirit. That means he does not have a body like I do, like you do. You can't see him, smell him, hear him, taste him, touch him physically. God is a spirit, and then it says, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his, and then it gives us a whole list of attributes. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, And truth, to which I'm going to add one. I do it a little trepidatiously. I certainly do not qualify the way that those men did, but the Apostle John specifically states in 1 John 4, verse 8, that God is love. So I'm not sure why they left that one out. So what's God? Well, God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like us. Okay, got that. Knew that already. He is infinite, he is eternal, and he is unchangeable in his glory. You're like, no, 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 because that's not what you said. Yes, it is. I just said it a different way. The glory of God is the sum total of all of his attributes. What are his attributes? Well, they are his infinite eternal and unchangeable. Are you ready? Being and his infinite eternal and unchangeable wisdom and his infinite eternal and unchangeable power and his infinite eternal and unchangeable. You follow? Being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. And I'm going with the apostle John and adding love. That is the glory of God, and that is the big picture that God is putting together that each one of our little lives somewhere, somehow, fits into. And that's what we'll gaze upon and come to understand and see ever more so. And so for the last four weeks, what we've been doing is looking kind of at how all of this plays out in the little puzzle piece life of this guy named Joseph, a life which, as we've seen is not exempt from things like pain and suffering and betrayal and evil and wickedness and hurt and injury. In fact, quite the opposite. It's full of a lot of that stuff. It's kind of a lot like our lives, which is one of the reasons this study has been so helpful. But you got to sort of stop and go, well, (laughs) thought you said the picture was of God's glory. Then what's up with that? Because if God has created all things, and if God sovereignly governs all things, even the minutest details of our lives, then isn't it also then true, Tom, that God must have ordained things like pain and suffering and all of these things to exist? Yes. And why? Well, for His glory. I mean, it's the answer to every question, honestly. Why did that happen, for God's glory? Can you explain it to me in detail? No, because all I can see is to the edges of the little puzzle piece of my life. But I know somehow that when it or me or you or all of us together fit into the big picture, we're going to see it then. So why did that happen? I don't know. For his glory. That's it. That's all I got for you. But you know what? That's enough. Isn't it? If it's not, it ought to be. God has allowed and even ordained all of these things to happen, quite frankly, because somehow they help us better to see and to understand and to appreciate and to value His glory, which again is His infinite, eternal, and unchangeable being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth, and love. So just take that. Think about it this way for a minute. You wouldn't know and appreciate wisdom if you didn't know foolishness. If you have not experienced foolishness in your own life, if you've not seen the consequences of foolishness in your life, in your families, and in the lives of others, I will tell you, I don't know what's worse, wickedness or foolishness. I just don't know. It's like, I don't know, you know, if I had to choose. But it sure makes me appreciate wisdom. And that's the point. You wouldn't know power if you didn't know weakness. You wouldn't know holiness if you had never seen corruption. You just wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know justice or appreciate justice if your heart had not just been enraged by injustice. If you've never experienced it, you you just... You don't quite get it. Goodness without evil, truth without falsehood, love without hate, and you would not know and appreciate the presence of God and the value of His very real being apart from those times in life when you're stripped of everything and everyone else. So anyway, Joseph suffered just like we suffered and like us. He didn't understand it at the time, did he? And we don't always understand it at the time. All he had was the answer to the question… And the answer is for his glory. And the point in part of Joseph's life is that for Joseph, that was enough. And he hung on to his God, and he trusted that somehow in the big picture, God was making sense of all that he could see only inside the edges of his little picture. And he stayed faithful to the Lord. And he believed that someday it would all fit and make sense. And you know what's so cool about the study of the life of this guy Joseph is that we've seen as we've studied his life that it did all fit and make sense because we've seen how God took his dysfunctional family, how God took the favoritism of his father, how God took the hate and malice of his brothers how God took the betrayal of his brothers, who sold him as a slave, into Egypt, how God took the betrayal then of Potiphar's wife, who falsely accuses him of rape, how God takes then his time in the dungeon of Pharaoh, his betrayal then by the cupbearer of Pharaoh. It's like this never-ending list of crud. And God used all of it. He took 13 years of pain and suffering, and I don't know why, but somehow it's for God's glory, and I can't even begin to imagine how. And he used it all to bring Joseph from Canaan to Egypt and to build a trust and a faith in Joseph that he would never have had apart from all of those experiences, every single one of them, to prepare Joseph for the single greatest leadership assignment in the world in his day. And to put Joseph right in front, a Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and he did. And what were the dreams? Two dreams, one message. The message was seven years of abundance. Yeehaw! It's going to be awesome. Followed by, uh oh, seven years of famine. And while they were all sitting there, kind of trying to absorb that, realizing that that's the end of their nation, that's the end of their kingdom, that's probably the end of them. Joseph steps into that void and he says, and by the way, I also have a plan. I know you didn't ask, but here's the deal. Here's how you need to store up during the seven years of abundance. Here's how you need to distribute during the seven years of famine, okay? And then what happened? Do you remember? Pharaoh then took prison boy Joseph and he appointed him as the prime minister over all of Egypt, flow chart, Pharaoh, Joseph, everything, everyone else. No background check at all, far as we know. And he said, look, I want you to oversee this program that you just described, storing up, distributing. I think you're the guy for that. So we've seen all of that. And what else did we see in the process? Let me give you a clue. It goes like this. God's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth, and love. That's it. We saw that. And then last week, we saw the glory of God's goodness, the glory of God's love as he brings Joseph's brothers from the land of Canaan using the famine, which is devastating, right? I mean, it's a difficult scenario to Egypt, and he reunites him with Joseph, and and God works this miraculous, because that's what that is. Twenty-two years of we tried to get rid of you forever, God undoes. And he gives them a real and authentic relationship like they, in fact, have never in their entire life even before the betrayal had. Stunning the glory that we see in all of that. The good that comes through all of the suffering and pain and hurt. And this week, as we come back to the story... What we see is that Joseph takes his family, sends his brothers back, and he says, look, guys, I'm going to let you have the conversation with dad by yourselves, okay? So, you go, and if you can explain the bloody coat thing, you know, great. That'll be interesting. But anyway, he sends them back. He brings his whole family to Egypt. He sets them up in the very best land of Egypt. Do not miss that. And then Joseph hugely blesses his family, which is awesome but it's not what he does for the Egyptians. Watch what he does to the Egyptians carefully and understand that he does it as a son of Jacob, who's a son of Isaac, who's a son of Abraham, to whom God had come and commanded Abraham and all of his descendants, which spiritually includes us, to be a blessing to the nations. We pick up the story this morning in Genesis 47, beginning of verse 11. It says, Joseph settled his father and his brothers, and what's the next word It's important? He gave. He ga- a gift is free, at least to you, isn't it? Joseph gave them a possession, which parenthetically is something that you own. He gave them a possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land in the land of Ramses as Pharaoh had ordered. So he secures a land gift for his family from Pharaoh. And then it says, and Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones, the idea being that he provided it to them for free. Now watch what happens next. It says, now there was no food. Not there was some food, but it wasn't quite enough for everybody. There was a little bit of food to be had. Okay, the wealthy people had food and no one else... No food at all. Now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And so Moses is telling you, this is a desperate life and death situation in which, by the providence of God, this man Joseph, who's supposed to be a blessing to the nations because God had come to him seven years earlier, just before the seven years of abundance, and had said, hey, seven years of abundance, seven years of famine after that, Joseph was ready. He had stored up, according to this plan, enough food to take care of and keep alive everybody. That's a lot. And it's also what you call leverage. So what is he going to do with the leverage? It says, Joseph gathered some of the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land... No, oh, that's not what it says. It's a little word, all. Just remember that word. It's key. Joseph gathered All. all of the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought, all the money of the poor people, all of the money of the wealthy people, all of it, all of it, all of it, and he brought it all into Pharaoh's house. But not the money of his family. Why? Because he's giving them food. They don't have to buy it. See? So he gathers all the money, and then it says, when all the money was spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, um, well, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? And our money is gone. And then Joseph said, well, all right, let's see what else you got. Give up your livestock, and I will give you food for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys. And he fed them with food in exchange for some of their livestock. You know, because, I mean, he didn't need to take all of it. Now he took all of it in exchange for all of their livestock that year, but not the livestock of his family because he's giving them food. And oh, by the way, if you've read this story carefully, you know that when his brothers came to Egypt and Joseph presented his brothers to Pharaoh, he said, look, I want you to tell them that you're herdsmen. And there's a lot going on there and there's a lot of reasons for that. But part of the effect of that was that Pharaoh said, hey, you know, why don't you guys take care of all my livestock? Which now, at this point in the story, includes all of the livestock of Egypt and of Canaan, except the brothers. It is a famine for everyone but Pharaoh, Joseph, and Joseph's family. For them, they couldn't be having a better seven years. Stunning. And then when that year ended... They came to Joseph the next year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord because we, we can't, that our money is all spent and the cattle are my Lord's. And there's nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. So why should we die before your eyes? Both we and our land by us and our land for food and we and our land will be, And the next words, really significant will be slaves to Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So then Joseph bought how much of the land? All of it. All the money, all the cattle, all the land. Oh, and parenthetically, Joseph, the Hebrew in Egypt, has enslaved all of the Egyptians, all of them. Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every Egyptian sold his field because it was life and death, and he had not bent over a barrel. So what else were they going to do? Because the famine was severe upon them, thus the land became Pharaoh's, but not the land of Joseph's family because I mean, they didn't have to buy anything. It, and in fact, lest we miss that, Moses, who's writing this from the perspective of, you know, 430 plus years later, who's able to look back upon how the whole thing plays out and who's very, very careful. Seven verses later says, now Israel, which is not a reference here to their father, but it's a reference to Joseph's family, lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, which is the best of the land, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. And so then when Joseph, whose calling in life is to be a blessing to the nations, has the nations bent over a barrel, instead of blessing them, he takes everything they have and he enslaves them. Interesting, isn't it? And we'll see in a minute what the consequences of that are, but I just want to pause and kind of go, you know, that should speak to us today. Because the New Testament makes it very, very clear that the children of Abraham are not those of his flesh. They are those of his faith. That's us. That's you. That's me. And so then what is the calling on our life? The calling in our lives is not just to be a blessing to ourselves and to our families or to be a blessing even to ourselves and to this family. The calling in our lives is to go out into each one of our little individual worlds and then corporately together as a church to go out into our world, this community, this city, this state, this nation, this world, and to be a blessing. We ought to be able to survey our lives and to say, Okay, here's the deal. Here's my little life. Here's my little world. How is it better because I'm in the midst of it? And how might I bless it? For Jesus' sake. So anyway, Joseph is supposed to bring a blessing to these people, but instead he, he brings a curse. He, uh, he takes everything they have, and then he moves them off the farms. There's nothing happening on the farms anyway. So he moves them all into these storage cities, these cities in which he has stored up all of this grain in preparation for the famine. This is where all the commercial transactions now begin to occur. He urbanizes Egypt. He transfers the wealth off the farms and into the city, out of the pockets of the people and into the pockets of Pharaoh, okay? Okay. And then, when he knows that the famine is coming to an end because he knows when it's going to end, he then comes to the people and he says, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to give you seed. The famine ends this year. This is it. So next year, going to rain. It's going to be cool. We're going to have crops. I'm going to give you seed, and I want you to go back to the property that used to be yours, but it's not anymore. And I want you to plant your fields, and I want you to, you know, bring forth your harvest, and I want you to take care of yourself from that harvest. Don't come looking to me for anything else. But Just like before the famine started, we're going to have a little taxation situation. I want you to take a big chunk of your produce every single year, and I want you to bring it in perpetuity from now on to Pharaoh. Pharaoh really makes out well in this situation. And Joseph personally seems to really make out well in this situation. And his family And that point in the story seems to be doing, I mean, they really are doing well. But then Jacob, their father, dies, and then, and we'll come back to that, and then Joseph dies, and we'll come back to that in a second. And uh uh-oh, then Pharaoh, to whom Joseph had been like a father, that's the language used, dies. He owes nothing any longer to Joseph. And Moses says in Exodus 1, that's the next Book, first chapter, verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and guess what he did? He enslaved Israel. How ironic. Isn't it? I mean, it's stunning. By blessing his family and cursing the Egyptians, Joseph unwittingly placed his family in a position of envy and and, in a position in which they're going to be envied and hated even by the Egyptians. Here comes a new pharaoh. He doesn't know Joseph. He owes him nothing. And it's politically expedient for him to enslave these Hebrews. And oh, by the way, in centralizing all of the wealth into the cities of Egypt, in urbanizing the nations, and then in creating this great system of taxation, which is always a blessing, I think you'd agree... What has Joseph also done? He's created the need for the building of additional cities. Guess who gets to build the cities? His own people. It's a complete reversal of what he did. Stunning. And there's a biblical principle at work here that you're going to recognize when I say it. Paul gives it to us. I think he states it most clearly in Galatians 6, verse 7. He says, do not be deceived. He's saying, guys, don't fool yourselves. God is not mocked. You're not going to pull one over on him. You're not going to sneak one by him. He's not going to be looking over here, and you're going to shoot by over here. You're not going to be able to ignore his commands, his words, his dictates, his wisdom, which is for your good and for the benefit of the nations as an aside as well, and get away with it. And so then he gives us the law. And it's agricultural. He says, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Joseph the Israelite forsook his calling to be a blessing to the nation of Egypt, and instead he enslaved them. He sowed slavery and reaped the enslavement of his own people. It's amazing. And the glory of the justice of the Lord shined through. It's all coming together. God's not off track. The goal is glory. And I think that ought to cause us to survey our lives too, because that applies to us as well. I mean, it's agricultural. You know, no matter who plants the seed, that plant comes up. We need to look at our lives and survey them in this regard as well and say, you know, what am I planting in my marriage? Really and truly, what am I planting? Because whatever it is, that's what we're going to get. What am I planting in relationship with my kids? Because whatever it is, that's what I'm going to have to live with. What am I planting by the way that I live into the tender soil of their hearts? Because whatever it is, that's in all likelihood what's going to come forth. What am I planting into my own heart? What do I look at? What do I listen to? Where do I go? What am I doing? How am I living? What am I putting in and feasting upon? Because whatever seeds I put in... That's what's going to come up. Nobody plants wheat and gets corn. No one. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. It's sobering. It's like, wow, that's a bummer. And yes, God forgives our sins. Thank the Lord for that. And through faith in Christ, who takes upon himself our punishment, he wipes away our sins and the eternal consequences of our sin. And as we've seen play out in the life of Joseph over and over and over again, God brings good even out of our sins. And many of us have experienced that in our lives as well. He turns it all to good. He says that He turns it all to good. Sometimes we don't see it until our life makes its way into the puzzle, but it's there. And yet, He allows us to experience the consequences of our sin in this life. And when we do, His justice shines through. His goal is His glory. Joseph enslaves all of Egypt, and then Jacob, his father, dies. Having laid him to rest, then Moses tells us, Genesis 50, beginning in verse 15, it says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, "Uh uh-oh. What if Joseph bears a grudge against us for you know, well, you know, and pays us back in full for that, you know, what we did and all the wrong which we did to him. Wrongs, which as we've seen in previous weeks already, Joseph has forgiven them of and let go of. But what does this tell you? It tells you that they haven't forgiven themselves. Sometimes that's the most difficult part of the equation. That's the hardest part. But what's also happening in their life is they're, well, they're reaping what they sowed. See, they, they took Joseph and they threw him in a pit and they sowed him into slavery. They sold him, you see. And now they find themselves in a pit and in the slavery of guilt and of fear. And so they write Joseph a note and it's a total lie. It's a fraud. It says, they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sins, for they did you wrong. He didn't say that. No one was closer to his dad than Joseph. If Jacob wanted to say that, he would have said that. He had every opportunity to say that. He had no problem communicating or even delivering difficult messages. You should hear some of the prophecies that he made about his boys. Stunning. And they're very much a you reap what you sow scenario. These guys are just scared. So they send him this note saying, your father charged before he died, lie, lie, but whatever, saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. That's true. And then they added, now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God, let's bring him into this, of your father it's really kind of beautiful. It says, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He recognizes the prison that they're in. And his heart is one of compassion. It says he wept when they spoke to him. And then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. And Joseph, who wants them to be as free of the past as he is, and who knows that seeing how it all fits in the big picture really does help calls them back to that big picture. It says, but Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me. But, guys, God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. I mean, can you imagine if that didn't happen? We'd all be dead, So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And so he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. And then the story of Joseph's life comes to an end. It says that Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. They didn't return to the promised land even after the famine. I mean, they had a good thing going there, and they'll reap what they sow. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, and also the sons of Makir, the sons of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. So he gets to see his grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. He's blessed. And then Joseph, who is apparently outlived by his brothers, said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but... God will surely take care of you and bring you up from the land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall not bury me here. You shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110. Wow. And he was embalmed after the fashion of the Egyptians. Think mummy. And they placed him in a coffin that no doubt was very royal, very ornate. It's the coffin of a king in Egypt. But he wasn't buried, and his unburied body, his coffin, stood then for over 400 years as a visible, tangible reminder to God's people throughout all of their enslavement that one day they would be free, and that one day their deliverer would come, and that Egypt was not their home. And that's the end of the story of Joseph, but that made me think of Jesus, who's far greater than Joseph, and particularly of his empty tomb. See, he's far greater than Joseph. Joseph's body is still somewhere at this point, you know, or decomposed or gone or whatever. But the Lord came forth from the grave. And he left it empty as a visible reminder to us, his people in this life, that someday we'll be free. Free from pain, free from suffering, free from evil, free from wickedness, free from hurt, free from injury, free from betrayal, free from death, free from sin, free from struggle, free... From all of the afflictions of this land, if you will, it's open and it's empty to tell us and remind us that someday our deliverer will come. And to tell us also that this world is not our home. By the way, knowing that this world is not your home frees you up to be a blessing to the nations, doesn't it? It should. And here's the deal. When we begin to live as though this world is not our home, what happens? God is glorified. We show forth His glory until He returns or takes us home, at which point we'll see how our little life, with all of the things that we had no answer for except for His glory, during the course of our life, finally fits and makes sense in the big picture of God and has proven all of it, every bit of it, to be good and even to be beautiful. Those, I think, are at least some of the lessons of the life of Joseph, and I hope they've been as big a blessing to you uh, as they've been to me. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we are reminded uh, today uh, that the subject, that the object, uh, that the goal of life is not us but it is you. And it is the demonstration, it is the manifestation of your glory. That means you don't exist for us, we exist for you. You don't live for us, we live for you. The goal of our life is not to create a puny little not-so-impressive picture of our own glory, but to be used as a vehicle to show forth your great and eternal and unending and perfect glory. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace and the strength that we need, not just to remember that, but to live it. Help us to remember that, you know, one day we will be free, one day our deliverer will come, and that this world is not our home, that we might bless this world, and in doing so, show show forth the glory of our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.